If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Octavius Caddo. He'll be answering our call on October 10th, 1871, at the age of 32. Caddo was an extraordinary man that worked tirelessly towards one goal, equality. After graduating valedictorian at the Institute for Colored Youth, he eventually became the school's principal, continuing the tradition of hiring black teachers as role models. Although you may never have heard Caddo's name, People like Martin Luther King used his life as the model to peacefully recruit volunteers to rewrite and enforce laws of equality that were being ignored. Possibly the best baseball player of his time, Cattle wanted the black teams to play the white teams, but the white teams would not allow it. Yet, after considerable effort, he organized and played in the first black versus white baseball game in history. Some have referred to Caddo as the Jackie Robinson of the 19th century. Yet after a life of service, raising his fellow man to believe and to dream on this day, on October 10th, Election Day, one year after earning the right to vote, Philadelphia was in chaos as white people were intimidating black men to stay home and not vote. But it didn't matter because Octavius was on the streets trying to inspire his people to vote despite the risk. While on the streets, he passed an Irishman whose head was wrapped in bandages after being in a conflict earlier. That man's name was Frank Kelly. The two glanced at one another, and then Kelly passed him. After a few more steps, Kelly had second thoughts, turned, and shot cattle three times and killed him. His funeral procession in Philadelphia was enormous, second in size only to that of Abraham Lincoln. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and cricket players everywhere, I give you Octavius Caddo. Hello, is that you, Mr. Caddo? Oh, it certainly is. But I'll tell you what, you can just call me OB. Oh, well, thank you very much, sir. It is so nice to speak with you today. My name's Tony Dina, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand right now is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak mm. as if we were sitting in the same room. It also allows me to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world. And, Obi, you have lived this purposeful and it's oftentimes complicated life, and I'm so interested in what you've done, and I was just hoping I could ask you some questions today. But before I do, I know this is a very strange introduction. Are there any questions that, that I can answer for you first? Oh, no, I, I feel pretty comfortable. You can go ahead and uh, start your questions. Okay, well, thank you. I guess the first question that I'd like to ask is, I mean, today is kind of a busy day in your time. There's a lot going on oh. today, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Election Day is always a very busy day. But of course, my priority is the school that I'm the head of on the boys' side. And so that's the way I start the day. However, boy, this Election Day really adds a lot to the whole concern about the day. Well, I can't even imagine what Election Day is like right now because the opportunity for you to vote, this is only, if I have my dates right, this is only a year old, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. 
Well, the first year was certainly memorable. Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, because the previous year, we suffered tremendous intimidation at the polling stations, and we were physically attacked, even by the police, and to the point that the Marines had to be called out from the Naval Yard. Wow. You guys were, you were attacked by the police, and the Marines had to defend you from yeah. the police? That is absolutely correct. You see, many of the police were Irishmen, and the Irishmen were dead set against us using our voting leverage to get the people elected that we know would promote equality. So they were very much involved in well, intimidation at the polling stations. Well, here we are. We're one minute into this conversation talking about police and Marines and intimidation. <laughs> There's a lot going on in the first minute here. For the people that are listening, let's kind of get them up to speed. What is the date in your time? The date is October 10th, 1871, and it's approximately 10 a.m. Okay, so it's early in the morning. Okay, good. And yeah. African Americans have been given the right to vote as of last year, correct? Yes, yes, okay. that is correct. And so now today is voting day, and I mean, what does that look like today compared to last time? And are the Marines there anticipating problems? I mean, what does it look like? Well, this is the interesting thing. The previous year, the Marines were called out. However, the governor of Pennsylvania made numerous protests saying that this should not have happened without his prior approval. So this year, we know that the Marines will not be there to help us. And that's exactly the reason why many of us African-American men have enlisted in the National Guard. In fact, I am major of the brigade of the National Guard. And we are going to take the responsibility for protecting our community on this day. Now, it's interesting because as I've read about you, I don't get the impression that you are this super radical person that gets involved with the National Guard so that you can get a gun and you're particularly looking for violence. A am I wrong? Oh, no, you're not wrong at all. Certainly not. I'm not looking to promote violence in any way, shape, or form. However, at the same time, there is the issue of acting to protect our community from the lawless ones who would like to stop us from exercising our right to vote. So what is it like for your friends and family right now? I have to believe that some of your friends and family and the people that you spend time with, they have to be concerned about going to the polls and thinking about if they're going to be attacked like last year, if they're going to be a victim of some sort of violence. How do you get people to go? I think it's important to emphasize the importance of exercising the voting rights that we have, because in voting power, we have the opportunity to influence and to promote equality. Now, I'll give you an example. In the previous election, there was something like 2,000 votes that decided the election. However, those people that had won in the previous year, they were very anti-equality. Now there are 5,000 eligible black voters that can turn the tide. 
So I emphasize to our people that regardless of the dangers, we have to go out there and exercise our voting rights. What kind of response are you getting? Are you getting pushback? I'm getting overwhelming support for this because I think we were able to make the case very clear that we can't just sit back and hope things will change for the better concerning equality. We have to exercise all the tools that we've been given to make that happen. And certainly exercising our voting rights fits the bill perfectly. Yeah, that makes sense. Positive change only happens on purpose. It does not happen on accident. And if somebody doesn't do something, things are going to stay exactly the way they are. And, of course, we know from history, quite often when you make those kinds of strides, there's some sacrifice. There's some personal danger. I don't think that you can certainly have an independent America without people deciding that it's worth it to even put their lives on the line to affect change. Well, seriously, your middle name is Affect Change. And we may end up coming back to Election Day because I have some more questions about that. But you have mentioned okay. the school that you are – I understand you're currently the principal of. And I think that your story of this school is – how he started and where you are right now is fascinating. And the name of the school – I forget. It's something like the Institute for Colored Young People or something like that. Isn't that what it's called? It's actually called the Institute for Colored Youth. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first got started with the school? Well, a lot of it had to do with the efforts of my father, who was working very closely with the Quakers concerning implementing a plan to provide education for African Americans. There happened to have been a Quaker gentleman by the name of Richard Humphreys, who had donated $10,000 for the purpose of establishing a school to educate black people. And the initial initiative that they pursued was more along the line of trades and more practical type working skills. However, over time, it became obvious that the real direction that should be pursued was developing a more higher level of education, particularly with regards to producing teachers out of the black community to help spread education. The plan was to actually turn the students into teachers? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that was the real thrust of it, because the situation was that, yes, there had been white teachers who did try to promote education of African Americans. However, Unfortunately, many of those white teachers had sort of inbred bias, and that was really a hindrance to promoting a very high level of education. In other words, they didn't really believe that we had the capability to grasp higher education, educational goals like complex mathematics and Latin and Greek and those kinds of things. However, we felt that if African-Americans were teaching other African-Americans, the students could see 
in front of them a role model that they could follow in order to raise their educational expertise. Jeez, that makes a lot of sense because if you can't see anybody that is your color or your race doing what you want to do, it's hard to imagine that it can be done until somebody does it. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's why I really applaud the strategy of the Institute for Colored Youth because their priority was bringing in black teachers to teach black students. Now, you started as a student there, didn't you? Yes, uh, I was 15 years old when I started at the Institute for Colored Youth. And I was glad to have the opportunity because the first school that I attended in Philadelphia was called the Lombard Street School. And in my class, there was 300 students, one teacher and two assistants. And of course, you can imagine that's a very challenging environment to try to actually get any good level of education. However, at the Institute for Colored Youth, the student-to-teacher ratio is 20 to 1, which is much more suitable to promote a higher level of education. Well, being the principal of this school and you starting there so young, is it difficult to find black teachers to manage this 20 to 1 ratio? No, it's like there's an unmined resource and it is not difficult because I do believe in the basic equality of humankind. So that within the black community, it's not surprising to find those that are qualified to teach and that have achieved a higher level of academic excellence. You could find a similar pattern within any community. So no, it wasn't difficult because I have seen if we are given the opportunity to excel in education, well, we are able to meet that challenge. Yeah, it's interesting that you describe that as, as un, an unmined resource or unmined talent, because, I mean, if there's one thing that we know in our time is that th there's no difference in the ability of blacks or whites or Native Americans to learn. I mean, we're just all people. It's just skin color. And you've got all of this talent, this black talent, that is just not being used because there was no place for there to go. I mean, the, none of the white schools are going to hire black teachers, I'm guessing, at that time. Is that correct? That started to change with the Institute for Colored Youth because several graduates did go on actually to be principals of public schools. Well, it's no big shock that, that you ended up being so involved in this school, understanding the important role that it was going to play in the future of educating black kids. And it seems to me that throughout your life, education has played a big role. I mean, it seems to me that not like you're trying to educate youth, but you're also trying to educate your fellow man to make people that don't understand that the world could look different than it does. Education plays a big role in your life. Is that correct? Absolutely. In fact, that was really deeply instilled in me by my father, who really saw the value of education in equipping me to join the struggle for equality. 
You know, when I was a little boy in South Carolina, it was actually against the law to educate a black person. Wow. But my parents, who did have some education, would give me education very secretly. And I'm happy to say there were other whites in South Carolina that also were very helpful in exposing me to education, sharing books with me, and those other kinds of things. Of course, though, they had to do it secretly. So now that I'm in Philadelphia, and I have an access to a better standard of education, and others in Philadelphia have access to this, I think it's important for us to be able to take advantage of this opportunity that many other black people do not have. You know, I want to ask you about your father, because your father seems like he was a pretty extraordinary guy. In fact, as you're talking about teachers being role models, I have to guess that your father, was he your first role model? Absolutely. He was a man of tremendous integrity. Now, I will tell you this. He did work as a in the rice mills, processing the rice that was produced by those that were enslaved. However, his great passion was to share the education that he had managed to get with others. He held a lot of informal classes to try and expose others who didn't have the opportunity to have the education that he had, that they would have that and hopefully inspire others to pursue that. Because again, he saw education as absolutely essential tool that we needed to have to advance the cause of equality. Was your father born a slave? No, my father was born a free man. His mother was born free from a mixed-race family. And his father's mother had been enslaved but was able to get her freedom as an adult. So they were born free. And in Charleston, it was maybe 50% of blacks were free, and but the other 50% were still enslaved. Tell me about you having a mixed-race family. So somebody in your family was married to a white person? I will not say married. I will say <laughs> had children. Okay, all right. Uh, because it was not an uncommon practice for slave masters to sleep with their female slaves and have children. Now, in some cases, when that happened, the slave master would end up freeing that child. And I have to say that's probably a big reason why my father and mother were actually born free. Oh, I see. Because the their parent didn't want right. to enslave their child. Yes, which, of course, as you can imagine, that wasn't always the case. However, yeah. I feel very blessed to have be able to benefit from those owners who said, oh, this is my child. I want to free them.
as you know, there have been some presidents in history that didn't take that same approach. Yes, I've heard some stories of a gentleman by the name of Thomas Jefferson who <laughs> did not seem to think that that he was their father was good enough reason to free the children that came. That is some tricky business right there. It's interesting how your father's freedom came about the exact opposite way is I honestly I didn't know that ever happened. I didn't know that some slave owners, when they would have a child with a slave, that sometimes the, they would free them because it is now their blood. And I guess that the fact that there is it's their blood now that it changes from property to family. Yeah, I I think that the issue of slavery really did affect different slave owners in different ways. I think for some, they lost the concept of the humanity of the slaves. For some, they really weren't human. And so as a result of that, perhaps really didn't actually even deserve freedom. However, there were others who never lost the concept of the humanity of the slave. So that now when the child is born, I'm looking at that child as not only a human, but a human that came as a result of my interaction with a female slave. Jeez, so interesting. So let me go back to your your father, and you were talking about the secret education. You had said Mm. that your father had these secret classes. You know, he'd basically try to help people. And is it was it illegal at that time for your father to educate you? Yeah, I want to make sure that we understand there was a period in South Carolina where it was not against the law to educate a slave, and my father was able to benefit from that. There were a number of sympathetic whites that saw his potential and would offer him education. So he came along at that time, but apparently as time went by, the leaders in South Carolina began to perceive education of a slave as being dangerous to the perpetuation of slavery. Because once people realize who they are and what their potential is, it is much more difficult to keep them enslaved. However, if you as a slave person are given opportunity to learn, it doesn't take long for it to be self-evidence that you're a human being and deserve every opportunity that others have. This sounds a lot like what I think I heard, and I may be mixing this up, but I know you're acquainted with Mr. Frederick Douglass, and it seems to yes. me that I remember hearing a story when he, when he was being educated when he was young by the lady of the house, and I think the, the man of the house came in and said, why are you reading to him? Like, if you read him, he'll never be able to be a proper slave, which is just absurd. And mm-hmm. so you're saying that's a common threat that the whites, that whites feel, that if you educate blacks, then, then it's just going to be problems from there on out, whether we're talking about slavery or even maybe in your time. 
Oh, yeah. I think less so in Philadelphia, which was certainly more progressive than certain areas in the South. But part of keeping someone enslaved is having their mind to be enslaved and limited. So many slave owners, if they say, for example, read the Bible to you, they're going to read the parts of the Bible that would have you to be obedient and subservient to your master. They would typically shy away from scriptures that would indicate that basically all people are created equal and deserve a equal opportunity as a good life. You know, I've never looked at slavery this way. It really is not just chains and whips. It is it's all the propaganda, it's all the mental games that you that they would do to keep a person in their place as well. Oh, exactly. And I think if we really understand the mentality of enslaving other people, it helps to understand that even if a black person becomes free, they still have to deal with a perception that you are inferior. You still have to do that. That perception tends to facilitate the mentality of enslaving other people, but then it leaks over to address even a free black person, because even if you are free, you are still inferior and we want to oppress you to keep you in your place. You said the word inferior there a couple times, and considering the way that the system and the pro-hold-the-black-down people in your time believe, it, it seems that if they were to look at you and see what was possible— I don't know how they could say that anybody is inferior because you have taken your education and your activism and all of this to a level that is unmatched. For example, tell me about your schooling. Mm -hmm. What is the highest level of your schooling? Well, I was a graduate from the Institute of Colored Youth. I was class valedictorian. And from that, I began to also work as a tutor particularly in Greek and Latin, and I achieved from that an incredible understanding of complex mathematics. And so no one could really tell me that I didn't have the same capabilities as any person. Now, getting to the idea of race and the idea of how you are perceived, if you are full-blooded African, you're at the bottom because that full blood is tonally, in many eyes, inferior. And even if you are a mixed-race black person, you're still inferior because now you are contaminated with black blood. Now, that is obviously a falsehood. And that's why it was good to see so many people come from all over the world to visit the Institute for Colored Youth so that they could see with their own eyes the equality that 
black people had. But now, because you have this false idea of superiority, you hold on to it for dear life. And even if there are examples pointing that you can see where what you believe is not true, you tend to hold on to it. And you tend to see those persons as exceptions to the rule rather than a clear indication of equality. <laughs> I see. Yeah, that would be their justification for a principal of a school who is tutoring in Greek and Latin and graduates at the highest level of his class, they wouldn't look at that and say, oh, yeah, he obviously worked really hard, just spent a lot of time in the book studying. It's just like, oh, no, that's just a freak of nature. You know, that's going to happen. I mean, every once in a while, you probably get a bad white person. So you got to get a good white, black person every once in a while. That's right. And again, just to clarify, I'm principal of the boys' school. There was also a girls' school, and, and I have responsibility for the boys' school. But it really is, in my mind, what I want to try to do is to destroy the illusion of racial superiority and totally discount it from the evidence of not only my life, but every student that I came in contact with. I was glad for the high standard that was set at the Institute for Colored Youth. You do not just graduate there in an easy time just because you put the time in. In fact, roughly 50% of those that had reached the highest level in the school had to repeat because there was such a high level of standard. Wow, they're not just pushing people and through. I, I mean, it's for people that are serious. Right. Oh, no, yeah. This was not meant to be for show or some kind of an illusion or anything like that. No, this was intended to be real, that anybody could look at it and see that it was real and really not have any kind of justification for discounting it in any way, shape, or form. That's fantastic. You had mentioned the girls' school. I didn't know about the girls' school. You got the girls and the boys, and I'm wondering right now, I mean, you're talking about this inferiority complex that you have to get over with black students. And I'm wondering if that is even more difficult for women in your time. Well, I can tell you this. I'll use a real example from the Institute for Public Youth. I wanted to be principal of the whole not just the boy side. I wanted to be the principal of both sides. I was not chosen for that. A woman was chosen to head both sides of the school. And she deserved to have that because I did well. She did extremely well. And I think the judgment of the managers of the school was that she would be better suited to head both sides of the school. And I happened to be engaged to a very lovely young woman by the name of Carolyn LeCount. And we had plans to be married. At 21 years old, she was principal of a school at 21 because her academic excellence was superior to many. She writes poetry, 
and she's absolutely a whiz at math and science. So my perception was that if you were a woman or if you were a man, that had less importance than what your talents and capabilities were. You seem like you are a very tolerant person. And I'm not sure how you do it when you've got a whole race of people doing everything in their power to hold you down. And yet it seems like that you're able to keep your cool in very difficult situations. What do you think about white people? Well, for my part of it, I see them as being deceived. And I see them, many of them, to be lost in vanity. Now, what helps me to keep a straight and proper perspective on this is my faith. You know, my father happens to be a minister, and he preached the equality of people, and he preached forgiveness, and he preached doing to others as you would have them do to you. So I move on a higher plane than, well, what did you do to me? Or what is your opinion of me? I cared less about people's opinion of me rather than what God's opinion of me is. Mm. So that was the foundational of my belief and approach to dealing with racism. It certainly is easier to move forward through difficult times with confidence when you understand that there's something greater than yourself out there. That's right. That that has got your back one way or the other. That's right. Yeah, men have influence. Men have power. Men make governments. Men make laws. They do all of those things. But again, because of my spiritual foundation that I got from my father, I understand there's a higher power. Yeah. And I understand that there are higher laws. And I understand that certain situations that we face, like slavery and inequality, will one day be dealt with. And that we are expected to endure this suffering, to endure this persecution, just as our Savior, Christ, and the apostles did. And in the end, they were exalted. Speaking of suffering, and coming back to where we are right now, it is election day again. And I'm curious, when the last election day where the Marines came in and there was violence, did people die? Well, yes. There there were some people who were clubbed to death. There was a gentleman that was clubbed and then shot at the 6th and Lombard polling station. And we expect that to happen because there's an Irish leader by the name of McMullen who had made it very clear that he intended to execute what he called club law at the polling stations, where if they were not able to intimidate you before you got there, that once you got there, like the white voters would be escorted in, but the black voters would be kept from entering the polling station. And if you persisted to try to do that, you would be beaten and your life was in danger. 
So the club law that you're talking about is obviously not a written law. This is an unwritten law, correct? Right. It's a phrase that was adopted by this McMullen character to let them know, yes, there's a law that says black people can vote, but there's another law that he was verbally instituting called club law that would prevent Africans from voting. Initially, they tried to look and see if they would just give us some rum or give us some kind of a bribe. That would keep us from coming to vote. But people were not going along with that idea and were determined to exercise the right to vote. I tell you what I don't understand. I don't understand why the Irish hate, hate black people so much. Because it seems like that is the case right now. Is it just this McMullen, or do the Irish have a problem with blacks? Yes, certainly the Irish have public problems with blacks. You see, I think it's true that if you have been abused and oppressed, sometimes that spills over to make you an oppressor wow. and an abuser. And my understanding from history here is that when the Irish started coming to Philadelphia in great numbers, they were despised. They were absolutely despised. But they fought through that and really began to get strongholds in the fire companies and in the police as well. And then they started to certainly have jobs at the Delaware River and Schuylkill River shipyards. Now, when African-Americans now start coming onto the scene, they see African-Americans as a threat to their livelihood. Oh. Because now African-Americans are going to be competing for those jobs. Right, because they got to work their way up like they, the Irishmen did. That's the thing. And what also happens is sometimes you could find an African-American willing to work for less money <laughs> than an Irishman. And so now that has a downward pressure on wages. I see. So now what they are actually trying to do in the way that they're expressing it is to prevent African-Americans from being competitors where they would have to share those jobs. That's why many Irishmen were absolutely Democrats. And Democrats would walk around and they had buttons that said, this is the white man's country. Let white men rule. And that was the mentality of the Democrats. Keep this city, this country, under the control of whites and resist any penetration from people who are not white, particularly Africans. You know, it's such an odd thing in human nature when you think about how, you know, you've got people that are held down and they're oppressed and they're treated poorly and then they scratch and fight to make a living and start working their way up through the system. And then as soon as they find their way up through the system, they just look back at the next group trying to work their way up, and they're like, whew, this is nice. Finally, we got somebody to pick on. You know what I mean? Instead of thinking, oh, yeah. why don't we lift these people up? <laughs> well, look at the history of this country. You have colonists 
that are looking at England as oppressors and even sometimes describing themselves as being enslaved. But look at what they turned around and did to those that they did enslave. It is the highest level of absurdity to just fight to the death, sacrifice everything, and then finally you get your freedom and you're like, whew, this is nice. Finally, we're free. We better enslave these other people so that we can enjoy our freedom. I mean, it's just crazy. Oh, yeah. It's insane. It's insane. And it's hypocritical. And it doesn't make sense because... During Revolutionary War times and thereafter, something like a million slaves that are in this country. And you're now complaining about England because they're taxing you. Yeah. <laughs> well, look at the situation for us free African Americans. We have to pay tax, but we don't have any representation in the government. Gosh, there was, and there were many years where we had absolutely no representation in the government. It's amazing. But unfortunately, they were blinded to this, caring only about what was going on in their lives in comparison to England. Yeah, that's, gosh, that's interesting. When we were talking about today, and we were talking about, again, going back to the election, because this is a big day, and mm -hmm. you think that there's definitely going to be violence today i'm wondering 100 oh, yeah well i'm wondering why violence wasn't more of your strategy because it does seem like things get done a little bit quicker when somebody's stabbing or somebody's shooting somebody sometimes and sometimes well, okay. i think it might be the only way to get things done but it doesn't appear that was part of your strategy at all and yet you served in the military you know all about violence and so i wonder why not go that route well, there's a difference. The first thing, and again, I, I want to emphasize my Christian background. And if you follow the biblical Christ, he is not advocating violence, ever. He is encouraging us to put our trust in God to straighten things out, rather than for me to pick up arms and fight to make things right and it's a whole different way of looking at the world and it's a whole different way that that a christian perspective the christian perspective is humble yourself before god love your enemies bless those that have cursed you and that god would eventually straighten things out now, enlisting in the National Guard, that is not to be an aggressor in bringing equality, but it is to be a protector, particularly of the women, of the children, of the elderly that could face violence on election day. So it was more of protection than hey, all right, now we're going to organize to overthrow this government. It makes sense. You know, as I listen to you speak, I, I know so little about your father, and yet I can almost feel his presence, and I can almost hear his voice when you speak. It sounds oh. to me like you probably repeat what he taught you regularly. He's that big of an influence in your life, isn't he? 
Absolutely. In fact, the phrase that echoed in my mind over and over again of what he taught me, do your little something. It doesn't always have to be a big thing, but do whatever it is that you have been empowered to do to bring change. And I really took very seriously his idea that education is the key. Education is absolutely the key. And this is what I try to instill in the students and the boys in my school that, hey, you have tremendous potential that you need to utilize. You need to rise up and be who you were created to be, not limited and oppressed always. What are some of the biggest challenges that you have in educating black young children, whether it's boys or girls? I mean, we've talked a little bit about getting past the, uh, the belief that they're lesser, but what, well, is there anything else that comes to mind? Well, I think, first of all, it's not just an automatic omission to the Institute for Public Youth. They had very high entrance requirements you'd be evaluated in all of the major subjects to see if you had at least the minimum kind of knowledge that could be built upon. That was very important. But the other thing is character. If you were a student and you're trying to get into the Institute, your character is as important, if not more important, than your academic progress. We, didn't, we wanted people to, that had amount of self-control, that they would be on a reasonable moral standard, that, that they wouldn't be given to fighting, that they wouldn't be given to destroying property, that, that you're looking for the kind of student that you can mold to reach their maximum potential. Other than that, once you begin to get education and to be achieving, one of the things I looked out for is, and I tried to control, is the idea of pride. I'm better than everybody else. I wanted to make sure that the students had instilled in them a sense of humility, a sense of service to the community so that they wouldn't just pursue selfish aims, that they would take their place in whatever it is that they have been talented with to do for the betterment of the community. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you're going to have fewer problems if you are starting with a group of people that actually want to be there instead of people that are forced to be there. And I think it was so important not only to lay a foundation that you could build on academically, but part of what needed to happen is to help that student understand how important their role was in this time. You see, because many Black children had no access to education whatsoever, but that you have been given it you have a responsibility. 
and that you have been gifted with talent to be able to learn and to apply what you've learned in the community. We try to make the students understand that they can't look at this in a selfish way. They needed to look at it in a much broader way as to how they can impact positively their community and stimulate others to succeed. So I'm putting together some pieces in my head of, of some of the things that you've said. And I'm not going to tell you, obviously, what happens later in your life, because who knows? You might be president at some point. I mean, you certainly have the work ethic to accomplish something like that. But I'm wondering if that is a good fit for you to be in a very high office. Because as I listen to the story of you talking about your dad, and your dad says, look, you don't have to do something big. Just take the thing that you can do and really do it. I mean, do your thing, but really do it. And it doesn't have to be big. And then I look at the way you deal with the school. And, you know, we'll probably talk a little bit at some point about when you enlisted black men to fight in war. And it appears to me that your approach is very hands-on. It's speaking to people, like being arm's length from people that you can impact. And I'm wondering if you would do as well on, on the big stage. Could you be president? Never thought about being president. In fact, I was actually approached earlier this year to run for a, a, a position that was open in the Senate. And I actually turned down the opportunity. And the reason why I turned it down was that I saw that the candidate that was out there that was white had a track record of doing what was right to promote equality in the black community. And I think I, I try to look at what doors is God opening for me to walk through. And right now, it seems obvious to me that my involvement in promoting voting rights at the level that I'm doing that and my involvement as principal of the boys school and other initiatives are what he put on my plate. So I try not to go beyond what I think I was assigned to do by higher power. That makes sense. I'm sitting here trying to figure out if you would be as effective speaking in front of a million people, if that was some way possible in your time, as you would standing in front of 20 people and then affecting those 20 people to become the next 20 students that affect another 100 people and on. And I guess I'm just... So if that white senator had not been a friend of your cause... Might you have run then? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And that, that, I certainly would have taken that idea much more seriously. But I had to be honest with myself, where I actually believe that white gentleman would probably do a better job than I would, because, again, he had the track record in politics that I did not have. What a great way to approach to something like that in such a humble and honest way. 
rather than I mean you know as well as I do as soon as you get into politics it's all about how much for so many people it's how much power can I accumulate and how do I get to the next level to accumulate more power and gosh what I mean what if everybody looked at it that way and just looked at it and said look what do we actually need do we need to push this guy out of here because this guy's doing great Maybe we find some other holes in the boat instead of plug one that's doing just that does, where a hole doesn't exist. Yeah, I almost looked at it as, am I a better candidate because of the color of my skin? And I couldn't come to the conclusion that I was because, again, the color of the skin is very superficial. It's really what a, an individual is bringing to the table that really should be the the criteria of who's supported and who's not supported, not the color of their skin. If you'd been born white, the things that you have tried to do in your life might have been easier. You might have been able to get to those things without some of the obstacles that you had to deal with right away. Have you ever wished that you were born white? No, I really look at that as pure imagination, as pure <laughs> unreality. I prefer to look at things the way they actually are and not to go into an imaginary lane of, you know, imaginary life of maybe this and maybe that. No, I think it's better just to deal with reality as it is and as my father encouraged me to do my little something to make things better. Yeah, that's great. In our time, there are I'm going to I'm going to spill the beans here and let you in on a little secret. But in our time, there are some extraordinary black civil rights leaders that, that come after you that are inspired by your work ethic and go on to just do amazing things. In fact, look at your life as a whole and just that's the model. They say, that's what I need to do to help my fellow man. And I guess the next question I want to ask you is kind of difficult because when somebody stands up and tries to change what is considered the norm, the status quo, sometimes that doesn't work out. And there have been some of those people in our time because they were standing up, they were killed, they were assassinated. Now, today is a really busy day for or a challenging day for you because you got people running around acting like crazy people because black people are trying to fight for their rights that they now have, which is they have the right to vote. Do you fear that somebody could get crazy and point a gun at you and something terrible could happen? Walking the streets shouldn't require the same courage as a soldier on the battlefield. Yet, that is exactly what Cato had to face on this day when he would make his last vote. In the next episode, you'll hear about how he brought the white and black baseball teams together on the same field and what caused them to lose so badly in that game. You'll also hear the harsh words said to him by abolitionist William Still, author of The Underground Railroad, and by Frederick Douglass. I'm glad you're enjoying these podcasts. If you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you at the next episode of The Calling History Podcast. 